Hello, everyone, and welcome to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions. My name is Courtney. And I am Carl. This is episode 107, and we're reviewing Made in Abyss, The Golden City of the Scorching Sun, which is season two of Made in Abyss. As always, there'll be spoilers throughout this episode. I feel like Made in Abyss season two was one of the most impressive and most hype anime of summer 2022. I don't know. You, you, you tell me because I it was my first time watching Made in Abyss this year. Uh, I know it came out, what, 2017? So people have been waiting five years for this season. Although there was that in-between movie that came out as a sort of season 1.5. Uh, but yeah, I, I guess the the community was pretty hype about its return. Yeah, it had an insane score on Mal at an 8.83. And uh, for context, we're actually recording this the same day the season has ended. Um, and so this is a, a fresh score. It might change as more people watch the today's finale. But yeah, I'd say that's a pretty damn good score among all the scores that we're getting for summer 2022. And we'll talk plenty more about Made in Abyss in just a second. Wanted to do a few housekeeping items before we dive into our discussion. So as many of you know, but as a nice reminder, we are in the middle of our Stone Ocean Part 2 review series over at our other podcast, Strictly Jojo. So if you're a fan of Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, head over there because every single week we are reviewing every single episode of the second core of Stone Ocean. Normally we're a bi-weekly podcast over at Strictly Jojo but we switched to a weekly format just so that we can go through all of these episodes for the next 12 weeks. Yeah, of course, all the episodes are available now on Netflix, but we just wanted to carry on the JoJo hype through the end of the year. So definitely check Strictly JoJo out if you are a big JoJo fan like the both of us. Another piece of news that we'd like to share is that we were recently guests on the Anime Brothers podcast. They invited us back. Thankfully, we didn't scare them away. <laughs> uh, and that episode should be live uh, as of the release of this episode. Um, it's the Waifu Wars tournament arc. They had their own Waifu Wars, um, and they invited us along with Ash from the Simping for Senpai podcast, and Ash was also featured on our podcast when he talked to you about Shield Hero. Oh, yes. So, Shield Hero Season 2. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was a reunion all around for what, the five of us. Did I get my math right? Five? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. We each picked um, a couple of our favorite waifus. And, of course, I had to defend my waifu, Komi. And you had to defend your waifu, Marin. Um, and we have, they set up a, a tournament arc where we had to decide who was the best waifu on that bracket. And yeah, it was some pretty intense discussions. So definitely check it out. Again, that's on the Anime Brothers podcast with our friends JD and Earthworm. Yeah, it was a great time. And uh, you're not kidding when, when some of that discussion got not heated, but very passionate. I uh, mm -hmm. I can respect the, the love for one's waifu, and that definitely came through for some of the waifu that were on that bracket. So if you're, if you're wanting to hear which waifu came out on top, which is a, to me, it was surprising. I won't spoil, of course, who, who came out on top, but to me, I was uh, a bit surprised. I didn't think they would go as far as they did. Uh, but if you're curious to know who won, definitely tune in. It was an awesome time. So now let's get back to Made in Abyss. 
And for context, um, our longtime listeners will know that when we do our review episodes, we go in-depth, we talk episodic about that anime. The only time we do more of a general review is when we have a movie, just because it's easier to talk generally about it. Here, though, for Made in Abyss Season 2, we're going to take a general approach. And there's a very specific reason for that. As I mentioned earlier, the season ended today with a almost hour-long finale. And we're on a little bit of a time crunch because I'm actually flying out to Denver in literally a few hours. So we haven't really had time to absorb and process the last few episodes that we caught up on today. So we figured a general discussion would be much more fruitful given everything that happened in the season. It's been a busy summer, guys. It <laughs> so really has. Maybe, maybe in line with um, the the series. <laughs> I was going to say we were going to do like an abysmal version of our usual reviews, but uh, we, we do have a lot of information that and thoughts and insight that we will share about this second season. So take comfort in that. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this. And um, I, I think we really wanted to get this review episode out there for you guys as soon as possible after the end of the season. Because again, this is one of the most hype shows for summer 2022. So we didn't want to delay it at all. So timing's a bit interesting. Again, I'm flying out soon. Won't be here for the rest of the weekend. But we are here right now to talk about the second season. And even before that, because we haven't reviewed season one or the third movie, which is the canon. The third movie? Oh, yeah. yeah there, there's three yeah, movies. Yeah, there's the two recaps. Right? Yes. The third movie is an actual canon movie that continues the story. I thought it would be good to talk a little bit about our thoughts around season one and the third movie, which is titled Made in Abyss, Dawn of the Deep Soul. So I'll let you go first because... I'm the one that kind of encouraged you, we'll say, to watch Made in Abyss. And I think we we have some pretty opposite opinions about the first season. But what were your thoughts about season one? Well, I'm, I'm just going to be honest from the get-go. I'm not so hot on this series as a whole. <laughs> I mean, I know that th this is beloved by the community uh, and, and people resonate with it and, and with its story and with its characters and message. I'm gonna I'm gonna quote Aaron from The Office. I just don't get it. Oh. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, there are there are certain things with like watching the first season that uh, like tugged at my heartstrings, especially the whole thing with um, Nanachi and Miti. Miti. <laughs> um, but I think what I think part of why I'm not so like attracted to the series is just because I'm not huge on the fantasy genre as a whole. And that's not discrediting this, this, this show at all. Um, it's just, it's not my personal cup of tea to delve into the fantasy genre. Um, even though this is a little bit more action adventure, but maybe that's another thing is that uh, w with, with this story revolving around like Rico and, and Reg, I, I, it's surprising how just like how much of a splatter fest this show is and I know it's, it looks like a, a kid's show on the surface but it, it's very far from it and sometimes I feel like it, the, the splatter fest can just be too excessive for me to to really enjoy the overall story what did you rate season one I think I gave it 
here's what's surprising is I, I gave it an eight. <laughs> well, hey, it's an objective review, right? Like you can love a four out of ten, and you can mm-hmm. hate a nine out of ten. Um, but objectively, if it is a nine out of ten, even if you don't enjoy it, it, it is what it is. Yeah, I'm not just gonna let my disdain for the fantasy genre affect my impartial thoughts about the series. But I, I, I did enjoy season one to a point. Um, again, with, with I think the thing I enjoy the most about it is the Nanachi and Midi story. And I would say Nanachi is my favorite character of the show. But Reg and Rico, I don't know. I'm not sold on them yet. Oh, my God. I love Reg. Reg is definitely my favorite character. Um, but I ended up giving season one a 9 out of 10. I thought it was phenomenal. In general, I, I really love Made in Abyss because it's a very mature story told through the eyes of children who are not yet mature and haven't had life experiences to know the reality of what they're getting themselves into and what this adventure really means and what it entails. So they're just as surprised as we are with the things that they have to go through and the things that they're exposed to. I feel like um, it's it's almost like a m- more morbid version of Hunter Hunter. I could see that, but I okay. So yes, there's obviously a lot of gore and very intense moments in this show. But again, it's presented in such a childlike package that I feel like the gore doesn't take away from anything. I think about other anime that are just like fucking gore fest, right? They're made to get you uncomfortable. Um, They're made to kind of push the envelope. Here, it's not really about the gore. The gore just happens because of what's going on in the show, because of the choices people make, because of the environment around them. So it's not like the gore just kind of comes out of nowhere and punches you in the face. I mean, sometimes it it does, mm-hmm. but there's a reason for it, and it plays cohesively into the story. So that's why I was less put off by some of the more gory moments or um, really, uh, I don't want to say cringe, but like queasy moments. Is that a better word for it? Yeah, I mean, with I think with Rico in the first season having to just almost cut her arm off, like that was that was one like queasy inducing moment for me. Yeah, that was rough. And I think another reason I really love this this story is because I love a good mystery, and there this is all about the mystery of the abyss. So I'm I'm really enjoying that. I remember when we were watching, or you were watching season one, and I would kind of sit in on some of the episodes. You were sitting there, and you were like, "Something better happen soon," because you're kind of you're kind of getting bored. And I'm sitting there like, "We just started the episode with the arm part when Rico like her arm freaks out." Um, <laughs> so I was just patiently waiting for you to get to that point, and then you had the exact reaction that I expected you to have because I had the same very grotesque reaction. Mm-hmm. But you did bring up a good point about season one when you and I were talking about it. Um, I think you had said like it's slow. And I agree. I think one of the maybe downsides that doesn't maybe capture as many people in the beginning is that season one starts off super, super slow. But it kind of builds that sense of mystery and wonder and adventure. And then it hits that point where Rico's arm freaks out and it just kind of goes a whole nother direction from there. So it's one of those situations where, yeah, the first part is kind of boring, but you need it in order to fully appreciate what happens after. I forgot I even told you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I remember you're, I was saying like, this stuff needs to go on. Even though like they, they pass through five layers in season one, it, it just, it takes it takes a while for that to happen, which is why I'm surprised like season two, 
is a little more engaging, even though it takes place almost exclusively in the sixth layer. But yeah, I'll admit it was a bit of a chore to get through season one. No, I agree. I felt the same way. And then I was encaptured by the last part. But again, I think it's like they're on this adventure with this false sense of security, this false sense of like, you know, positivity. I mean, Rico's always positive no matter what she does. Um, but you you as the audience member are also in those those shoes because you don't realize what's about to happen. But anyway, moving on to the third movie, Dawn of the Deep Soul. What were your thoughts on that? And what did you rate it? I think I gave that one, looking at my mail, I gave the movie a 7 out of 10. Mostly because... And I know this is probably a discussion that happens a lot in Made of Abyss, Made of Abyss, Made in Abyss, is with the movie centering around Bone Drood and the actions that he takes in this movie. I didn't like it, but apparently you love Bone Drood. No, I don't love Bone Drood. <laughs> oh, I, I, I think it's a villain that you love to hate. Yes, I love to hate him. I, I think he's interesting, but I don't, I don't love him. Yeah, I, I, I think it. <laughs> I feel like a, all this show is about is is just like exploiting kids and making them suffer in the the worst way possible, and Bonjoud was like the prime example of that. And I think in our our villains episode, like our our favorite villains that we did a while back, um, we discussed Bonjoud. I kind of had to keep it spoiler free for the most part, but. Yeah, just the stuff that he does with, with Pushka and the experience that he did on the children and, and, and turning them into hollows. Uh, you could argue that he was doing it for the benefit of humankind so that they could explore more of the secrets of the Abyss. But especially with Pushka, I felt like he was being a little bit exploitative. What did you rate the movie, though? I gave it an 8 out of 10. Um, and yes, we, we talked at length about Bone Drood in uh, episode 99 of Strictly Anime, our favorite villains in anime. So if you want to hear a more in-depth discussion around Bone Drood, definitely check that episode out. But in general, I thought that the movie was really good, but didn't hit quite the same as the first season. And I enjoy Bondrude. While I don't love him, I do enjoy his character because, as you described, he is incredibly divisive. Some people are so pro-Daddy Bondrude, and some people are so anti-Bondrude. But that's a great point about his character is that he's such a gray area. He's so morally ambiguous that you can argue what he's doing is good, and you can argue equally that what he's doing is wrong. Because you, you have, like, as you described... He's using Prushka and these children for the the betterment of humanity. And you can argue that he gave Prushka opportunity when she was on the verge of death twice. And he gave her a very loving home. I mean, she adored Bondrude, right? But in the end, he, he turned her into a whistle with a lot mm -hmm. of fluid and whatnot. So you can also argue that his methods are immoral and his methods like do the the means justify the end right like that's i think the the line in the sand when it comes to bone Drude. i just came up with the analogy in my head is that like bone Drude, like his treatment of pushka is like when you are taking care of a, a pig and making sure you're feeding them adequately and they're being taken care of 
just for them to turn into bacon by the end of their lifespan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he kind of was maybe not eating her, but absorbing her as a, uh, a power pack of sorts. Yeah, and then she just became a, a, a fucking a fucking tiny device. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> just mind-blowing, too. But yeah, I, I enjoyed uh, Dawn of the Deep Soul. I thought it was just as, like, intense and, and pushed the boundaries just as much as season one. But there was something special about season one and that sense of wonder and adventure that I, I really, really loved. So now on to season two. Before we jump into the synopsis, I guess, what are your general thoughts or initial takeaways from season two? It was really confusing at first. Like, understanding the concept of the village. And I mean, I, I think what I... What was intriguing about it is that the series took a different approach with season two where you have with just uh, Reg, Rico, and Nanachi's journey through the abyss, it's mixed in with these sort of this these prologue elements where it tells of not the origin of the abyss, but like a the group of pilgrims who who journey through the abyss and learn about the curse. And then they kind of do what they can to survive. And then that leads to the, the goings on in the present where you have this village, this mysterious village and, and the, the, the kind of maybe like conspiracies going on around it. Uh, but even this too, like maybe the first five episodes, like they were a bit of a slower pace. Uh, it, things did pick up when Faputa enter, entered the picture and getting like the pieces about uh, Vueco's story. Uh, so it, it did get more interesting towards the second half of the season. Um, but I, I think I, I just kind of feel the same way with season two as I did with the first season. Um, and I think it's becoming just more clear to me that this show just seems to be about putting children in very drastic situations and and just amping or adding a, a, a touch of gore to that too. What did you think though? <laughs> so I, I really enjoyed season two. Um, I, I'll admit I was a little disappointed that the exploration part of Made in Abyss was put on hold in order to explore, I guess, like an immediate situation. So really like we didn't get anything beyond the golden city. We didn't get anything beyond, we didn't even get really anything about the sixth layer. We just got like this, this tiny bubble. Um, but there was so much to offer in that. It was incredibly entertaining. It was just as emotional as the first season and the third movie. And it introduced us to a lot of in intriguing characters who all died at the end. So only one of them survived. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we went through all of that and only one of them survived. But I, I, I'm confident, uh, I say that hesitantly, but I, in general, I'm confident that these stories, these characters that we got introduced to will have some sort of... Um, impact i guess in the later story because it would be a bit of a shame to have gone through this entire arc only to not revisit any of the things that we were introduced to here so i, I think that this season made me think a lot more than the first season because i did feel a little more confused throughout season two than i did in season one 
and a case in point is who is the the antagonist who was really the antagonist who was the villain not even antagonist who was the villain of the season can you name anybody who was like truly a villain um i would say like towards the end of the season it kind of flops between or flips between uh wazukan and faputa but are they really the villain? Because you can, well, similar you, to Bondru, mm, yeah. you can argue, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in more depth, but you can argue that what they're doing is for the betterment of others. And at certain points, they're displayed in a, or portrayed in a light that is more positive, and then other times it's it's more negative. I feel mm-hmm. like the only actual villain or antagonist or bad person in this entire season was Dudoimo, the guy who is like sexually abusing Waco oh. uh, on the ship in the beginning. I thought you meant like his 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 creature. Form. No, not even that thing. Like the actual Judoimo from the very beginning. Like that guy. Fuck him. He's probably the only one who I can confidently say fuck you to. Yeah, I was gonna say on a meta level, I think it, the Curse of the Abyss is, yeah. is, is the, <laughs> the main antagonist for for everyone. The creatures and, in the abyss that were yeah. like eating everybody. Yeah, uh, but I think that's one part of the show. Or part of the series that is is intriguing is that it always deals with like these moral gray areas, and it, it kind of reminds me of um, Attack on Titan in a way, where yeah we're presented with with one perspective, uh, with again with like what what Wazukian does um, when we find out like the big reveal about where everyone's getting their nourishment. Uh, and then <laughs> you flip that with what Faputa is trying to achieve, but juxtapose that with the utopia that is built in in Iroburu. Uh So it, it makes you really think, like, where I guess your morals, or um, to, to coincide with this season's theme, where where your values lie, and and I think that's what makes this season a little bit more interesting than just the, the the pure journey we get in season one. So let's pause there. Let's jump into the synopsis because I think we're getting into some really good discussion and it makes me want to talk about many, many things. So let's go through the synopsis. All right, dear listeners, it's time to book a trip to the 24-karat Golden City as we dive into our synopsis. This is actually a quick synopsis, synopsis, but a synopsis and discussion for Made in Abyss season two, also known as the Golden City of the Scorching Sun, which is the 2022 anime adaptation of a manga series written and illustrated by Akihito Tsukushi. Season 2 continues the abysmal adventures of Riko, Reg, and Nanachi as they enter the sixth layer of the abyss and find themselves in the village of Iruburu, inhabited by hollows and somehow immune to the curse of the abyss. Through flashbacks of one of Todoroki's female descendants, we learn the history of the village as it was inhabited by a group of pilgrims guided by a native child with a desire to cosplay as a mommy someday. However, not, not all is as it seems when it comes to the true, quote-unquote, valuable nature of the village, although at this point in the abyss, nothing is really a fucking surprise anymore. Also, this village is shaped like a penis. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, with some of the other weird, like, child nudity and sexual innuendos, I'm not surprised if that was intentional. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
<laughs> I would say, like, honestly, that's probably one of the only downfalls about Made in Abyss. I'm just going to throw it out there because I know it's it's a topic. I, I feel like the, the sexual innuendos infused with children in some way, shape, or form always make me very uncomfortable. So that's one of the things that you, I guess, just have to deal with because that's already written to the story. I wish it wasn't, but there you go. Yeah, Falputa digging into Rig's pants. Or the dude who <laughs> polished Prushka and then said afterwards to himself that he... It was so sensual that he he climaxed. Oh, I'm like, why? Yeah. I didn't need that literally at all. It added nothing to the story, <laughs> but there it was. Anyway, <laughs> let's talk about OP and ED. Yeah, uh, I don't. I feel like we're not gonna have much to say about these because we we skip them for the most part. Um, and I wasn't really thrilled with like the the first OP uh, for season one. The the, sec- the f- first ED was kind of funny though because it was just like a happy go lucky song. That yeah, was it was very like, it was like a child song, like a children's yeah. song. Uh, but with this season, OP, we have Katachi, which I believe translates to Shape by Rico Azuna. Not the, the Rico from the show. This is a, a, a separate artist who ha- also happens to be named Rico. Uh, you get a bird's eye view of the abyss and the visuals as you have the past and present characters interspersed throughout uh, the song. I mean, it's 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 nice. It's it's inspiringly adventurous. Like I I just pictured Moana for some reason listening to to this song, uh, but yeah, it, there's not much for me to say about it. Like I we skipped through this op, um, but I think one interesting lyric that I pulled out is that it's I'll be shaped and formed by all the pains I go through, which kind of reminds me of. Wacko's character and the stuff that she had to endure with being part of the pilgrimage and then having to take care of Irum Yui and seeing how she ended up. Or even I think Rico and Reg, because one of the things I love, a very small detail of Made in Abyss that I, I'm loving is that they don't just get better. Um, Rico, for example, has a permanent scar on her cheek after some of the things that she went through previously. Um, Now, her hair is cut. I imagine that her hair is going to stay short for quite some time in the show. Reg has gone the entire second season with his arm missing still. They didn't just, like, come up with some clever way to get his arm back, right? Like, he may never get his arm back, and I love that. I think it's, like, the consequences of what they go through stick with them. What happened to his arm? I, I forgot. It got, I think it got sawed off at Bondrude's place, didn't it? Oh, that's right, because they were experimenting on him or whatever. Yeah. So he okay. is down to one arm. Still makes it work, um, but there are some times that it actually does hold him back when he can only do half of what he did before because he only has one arm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess it, it also just, or the song applies holistically to, you know, this adventure having its share of risks with its rewards yeah and i'm a, i'm the same as you with this op i think it, it's fine I, I felt the same way with the first one like it's fine it fits the show but it's not something that i'm enthralled with i did like the song and the visuals for the second season a little bit better than the first season's op but yeah it it's fine that's it and then ed wise we have endless embrace by myth and roid i think they did a song for an anime that you had watched, because I've seen that name on our anime Spotify playlist. Uh, for this ED visuals, I wrote in my notes, black and white amoebas against the rolling credits. I think 
upon closer inspection and knowing the context of what happens, I think they're supposed to be like the the children of Iromyui. Like the black goop stuff? Yeah, the yeah. ones that were surrounding Vueco in, in her like her hole of a prison or whatever. Um, this song is kind of ethereal. Uh, and I, I don't normally vibe with those um, musically. But lyrics-wise, I think it speaks to the relationship between Vueco and Iromyui, just to pull out some lyrics. I still remember you, the time we shared, the love you gave. Though everything has changed, you push me to live on. So really enforcing again the traumatic, the traumatic story of Weku and Iromyui, but the positivity that comes out of it. Yeah, I thought the ED was fine, <laughs> just like the first season's ED. I just think all of them are fine. Um, I did appreciate the visuals. I like that it's very black and white. That it's it's more um, like. There's a lot more black in the color scheme, which I think plays into the darkness that Wicko always talks about, that the darkness that she's in, the darkness that she longs to be in, I guess. So yeah, it was it was fine. <laughs> the music was good. I mean, <laughs> OP and ED wise, yes. The soundtrack, as always, fucking amazing because oh, Kevin yeah. Pankin just kills it. And actually at Crunchyroll Expo um in san jose that we attended back in like early august we went to kevin pankin's panel where he talked about like his music composition process is that the correct term yeah his his process um and his thinking uh i think he touched upon uh like how he composed reg's theme for season one using a mix of like traditional instruments with electronica uh, kind of to to show how reg is is like a hybrid of like human and mechanical parts uh, so that was really interesting and then he went into depth about how he, he got the voice the singing voice for the song where it, part of it sounds like my heart will go on it's like -na 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 -na. oh I'm yeah. familiar with it uh, which yeah that was also intriguing as well but yeah, just understanding the mind of a music composer, especially one for anime. Um, and I I think I've said this before. I think music scores in anime, they, they don't get the recognition that they deserve because, like, some of the stuff, especially, what, like, what Kevin Pankins wrote and written in Maiden Abyss, I want to say is, like, Oscar-worthy. Um, and just as with season one, his score for season two is just stirring as always. It's never bombastic, even in intense action sequences, but especially in the, the quieter moments and just like the character moments, it still hits the right amount of emotional tone that just complements each scene. I have a few like early thoughts about season two that I wanted to throw out there. Um, I really appreciate that season two picks up immediately after where the third movie ended. I love that. You get no gap in time. You miss nothing. Um, you don't even miss Rico 
uh, farting and shitting in the little pod that they take down. Oh, yeah, you <laughs> that enjoyed was that awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love toilet humor, so that was just great. I'm like, this is already setting up for a fantastic season. Um, but yeah, I really did appreciate that they wasted no time jumping right back into the story because it's just it's tough sometimes when you feel like you missed out on something because of the way the next season starts. But yeah, here you don't miss out on anything. And there was a great amount of mystery that was built up very early on in this season, especially in those first few episodes where they're exploring the sixth layer and Prushka is stolen and there's like these creatures with their assholes, you know, sewn up and stuffed inside. There's things stuffed what? inside of them. Um, they're just like, like, what the fuck is going on? Who is this creepy person that's like stalking them and stealing from them and doing all of these weird things we come to learn later that all of them were very positive things that were very beneficial and helpful to um to this group but at the start of things you're just as concerned as as the group is and then they arrive to the golden city and you don't even really realize at first that it's the golden city like they don't make it super clear it's just like this this community that's there with a bunch of hollows and then pretty quickly you realize what's going on but you're just wondering, like, who the fuck are all these creatures? And what is what is going to happen to them? Because they can't even communicate with anybody except for Kaja. So the Golden City, is that's the layer itself, right? I think. So I'm calling because it the Golden it's... City, but I don't think it's literally the city that they're in. Yeah. I think that's the city that the original group was seeking. Because I think it, like the, the environment itself was, was like a desert and you had the beaming the sun beaming down or whatever um because like they're further down in the abyss uh but the the, the scorching sun and since the title of of this season um and then you know you have the village itself that the, the main trio enters which is irobu which i just realized or i realized towards the end it's kind of a play on irum yui's name because it's irubu oh yeah I didn't realize that either. So maybe that it's also like a kind of a spoiler in itself. They tried to tell us early on what was going on. <laughs> right, because it's it's a living village, and it, it also makes sense because I think just looking at the 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 background or the environment itself, there was something that the meaty about, and I don't mean meaty. I mean like <laughs> like flesh tones mixed in with the colors of nature. And just the, the texture of the ground felt like something squishy and fleshy. Yeah, I agree. That's a really good point. There were a lot of like pink tones for something that was supposed to be very desert-like or in an area that was very desert-like. So yeah, that could be a blend of Irumui and the surrounding environment becoming mm. and creating this whole village. I'm also surprised they came up with a whole language system for this show or just for like the these 13 episodes and i don't know if we're gonna hear this language in subsequent seasons for maiden abyss but it just seems something like very very intricate almost like um what is it klingon in star trek which i know has almost become a, a an official language or the dothraki language in game of thrones I hope this language comes up again because there is that part where uh, Rico takes note of some important terms. Like she has that piece of paper and like writes down different terms that the one 
the one Hollow is teaching her. So hopefully that does come up in a later point in the story where she's able to understand or at least partway interpret based on what she learned during her time in this village. I think a running theme for season two is that as we we spoke about earlier, nobody is what they seem. I think so many characters seem to be evil and then end up being good and then maybe seem evil again and then are good again. I think one of the first examples that comes to mind is Ma. <laughs> oh, yeah, Pokemon. First we have Meaty, now we have Ma. <laughs> she was, I know like she was a wholesome character, but just her saying ma was annoying as fuck really i I didn't mind it actually what i found annoying and uh, i'm sure there are people who found this very endearing i found the sosu to be really annoying oh from faputa yeah i'm like oh my god stop i I understood later they explain like it's an honorific uh word to use but yeah i just thought it was some (laughs) like it was just a force of habit for her it was yeah it just yeah it was like off-putting for me i don't know I, that's just me personally. I, I didn't like let it ruin the character for me, but part of me was like, I'd be okay if she stopped saying so suit. Or it's like uh, Boingo in JoJo. Doesn't he say something? Oh, he always says like, hi, at the end of his sentences. Yeah, it's like Kinda one of those like quirks, um, yeah. or like quirky things that certain characters do where I'm like, eh, I'm not really into that. But whatever, it, it, Fapta was still a great character and we'll talk more about her. Um, but Ma is a is a great example of a very ambiguous character in the beginning because Ma takes Mania, squishes Mania, and everyone's like, what the fuck? Fuck you. I can't believe you did that. Um, everyone hates Ma. And then Ma has a redemption arc where people call it she in some of like the the like Reddit posts and things I've seen. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say it. Um, where it like, you know, sacrifices a lot for Rico goes on this journey and ends up being with her until the very last moments when it disappears because it gets outside of the the boundaries of the village. And of course, the best part about Ma is its ass. <laughs> like It oh. has like a middle-aged man ass, and I don't know why, but I love it. Um, another character that ends up being very ambiguous is Beloff. Beloff in the flashback seems like such a kind person, um, very intelligent, really wanting to help the group ends up becoming like going insane because of the realization that he's been eating Irumui's children. Um, and then you feel like that causes Bailoff to become almost a villain after he transforms into his hollow version. But then we learn that Bailoff, I guess, is pretty decent because he releases Nanachi. He gives um, Fapta those memories and gets to finally fucking die <laughs> he just wanted to die the whole time yeah <laughs> i think his his character design or as a hollow of course throws everyone off and then just his mysterious thing of like not wanting to release nanachi and unless he got a part of faputa's in return yeah or even rico like he was literally ready to take rico's fucking legs or organs or arm or her oh, eyes. Oh right, in exchange for Nanachi. Yeah, so right. it's like really how good is he? I don't know, like again, very ambiguous characters. I think the most ambiguous of all the characters is Wazukian. What did you think of him? And like where where did you land with him by the end of it? Um Yeah, I I thought he, he he seemed like kind of an asshole when you find out that he was using uh, Irum, Irum Yui's children to make stew for everyone and 
Again, here you have like that that moral dilemma where yes, it was it would it seems like the right thing to do because it saved the the pilgrims from massive bowels of diarrhea and and dying off of, of dysentery like in <laughs> Oregon Trail, but like you think of uh, uh, not Faputa, uh, Irumyui, like her her one goal in life was to to bear a child, even though she was deemed infertile by her 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 tribe, um, and just you know the fact that he's exploiting that um, to the pilgrim the pilgrim, pilgrim group's benefit. It's it's reminiscent of of Bondrud, um, but then yeah, he just becomes in his hollow form. It's just weird that he just seems so whimsical and just kind of ignorant of of those of that sort of violence that he's incited. Um, and then the fact that he kind of claims himself to be prophetic and envisions like. A, a dark journey for the characters like once Iruburu has has disintegrated which I guess to to a fault is true because you're you're going down the abyss which is like going down like the nine circles of hell but yeah I, I it was hard to really gauge where I stand with uh, Wazukian after everything was said and done what, what about you though yeah, I felt the same way. Like at first when the revelation came through that he was feeding the dead children to the group, I was like, well, that's really fucked up, but he's not wrong because they've already died and he was able to save literally everybody's lives through this method. Through this method, But I think like an episode or two later, they then revealed that he was taking it a step further and the freshness of that meat played into how potent it was as like a healing um, you know, is a source of healing. So he was taking the children from uh, Irumui before they had perished, not even allowing her the time that the very limited time that she had with her children. Um, you know, she, he was taking that away from her. And so then I was like, okay, now I don't quite know how I feel. I mean, again, it's all still fucked up, but now I'm like questioning him. And then in present day, he continues to do very ambiguous things by telling Reg that the only way to buy back Nanachi is to bring back a part of Fapta. Well, in doing so, that makes the whole town freak out. And um, like even Irumiui herself as the village starts to react to that. And then he has that part where he's talking to Rico about, you know, I guess like his desire to continue adventuring or, you know, the the revelation that she has for, for his desire to to continue adventuring, but it's only to buy time for the creature Judoimo to mm-hmm. show up in order to take Rico and Reg out of the picture. But then like he doesn't stop Vueco from shouting to Reg like helpful information so that he can survive. But then like he takes Vueco <laughs> with him down to the abyss. Like or he, like I just don't know what the fuck he's yeah. doing. <laughs> it's like sometimes he plays devil's advocate, but then sometimes he he just it's like he's also willing things to happen like he's god he just flip-flops <laughs> so much throughout the season and i think where i land with him is like he has good intentions but um doesn't always keep those good intentions at the forefront of what he does 
because yes, he did create a safe haven for the group. He saved everyone's lives. He gave them, I guess, a version of immortality because um, they've been living for over 150 years or something like that. Um, but really, at the end of the day, he took away things from Irumiyui, took away things from himself, where he couldn't even go adventuring anymore. Um, and he he just didn't have that um, compassion for, for others um, or care for others and, and w what his actions would do to them in the long run. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know where I, I land with him, honestly. I don't know if he's good or bad. I dislike him. I can say that much, um, but I can't concretely say whether he was like an evil character or a good character. I think one of my favorite parts about season two is the glimpse that we get into Reg's backstory, which is not a lot, but we get some context around like him with his memories and I guess like him on his way up to the surface. He didn't really share too much in those flashbacks, but we do learn that he was passing through this area where Fapta was because he was on his way to the surface he couldn't use his hand cannon at the time, but he had a mission that he was doing, whatever that mission was. I think the assumption is the mission was to find Rico uh, and that he was sent up there by Rico's mom because people are speculating that in the initial shot where he's first meeting uh, Fapta. He's got like something on, on his back and people think that that might be Rico's mom's weapon that they eventually obtained in season one. So I think there's some tie there, um, some hints there as to like what his origin story is all about. Yeah, I, I didn't get much besides, oh, he happens to know Fapata. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Reg is still still a mystery. Uh, and I mean, I'm, I'm eager to, to see the pieces come together. But yeah, I, I can't really say much about about him besides it, it seems like he almost had a an, an intimate relationship with Faputa. yeah they were like like smitten with each other back when he had his memories okay reg is also a gray area actually that that whole relationship is kind of a gray area because and that's right on par with everything else that's going on in the season what i noticed is that in the flashbacks Reg um, was told by Fapta and the Big Daddy. I'm just going to call it the Big Daddy. Um, cause that's what everyone else has been calling it. Gaborun, I think, is its actual name. Oh, okay. Well, or, or Gabu. <laughs> I'm going to go with Big Daddy because it looks like a Big Daddy from Bioshock. But um, they explained to Reg in the flashbacks that Fapta's whole purpose in life, why she was created, was to free her mother. And that Fapta is well aware that there is a living, thriving, blossoming culture that lives inside of that village. But she is still going to have to fulfill her destiny anyway. And Reg is like, okay, cool. Let's make it happen. I'll come back down from the surface and I'll help you fulfill your destiny and then we can go adventuring together. Fast forward to present day. Um, Reg obviously doesn't have his memories, but instead of first being exposed to Fapta and her destiny, he's first exposed to the village and has some very new, but, you know, creates some some relationships with some of the people in this village or some of the hollows in this village. And because he's first exposed to the village versus Fapta this time around, he now takes the complete opposite stance where he wants to stop Fapta and doesn't believe that what she's doing is right and she shouldn't kill all these people or these hollows. So I just thought it was really cool to see both versions of Reg's interpretation of what's going on with Fapta based on who he came into contact with first. Oh, yeah, I didn't even 
notice that. I, I guess that also just um, ties in with like value being a, a recurring theme throughout the season is Reg has two different sets of values in those situations. One where like he, he, he sees the value of Faputa when he first met her in, in carrying out a mission on behalf of her mother. Like that's just, that sounds virtuous, but then we realize the, the gruesomeness of, of that mission. And then yeah, the second thing, understanding that, you know, like this village, they've lived peacefully despite its, its dark nature. And, you know, like they deserve to, to, to have that, that quiet life in the abyss. Although towards the end of it, like it just gets destroyed because it's, it's just all, all, none of that matters when the abyss takes over and like the village ends up crumbling anyways. But yeah, I guess interesting take on like the different set of values there. Although I say all of that, but by the end of um, season two, Reg is like, okay, Fabta, you were right. I'm going to let you do your thing. Like he, he said, I'm going to stop you. But then he's like, wait, actually, I get it. You need to do this. Like this is your destiny. This is the whole purpose of, of your creation. Mm-hmm. Um, your mother is suffering and you're just trying to free her. Granted, it's at the cost of like gruesome mutilation and consuming of the, the hollows. But I guess an eye for an eye, maybe most literally, because they ate the children and now she's eating them. So it's like he <laughs> he indirectly accepted their their genocide. Kinda. Right? I mean, they also <laughs> accepted it. I think like yeah, she think... was born to destroy them mm-hmm. and like their purpose was to worship her because there were many times where they should have been afraid of her and they kind of were, but they couldn't get away or look away because she is the embodiment of value and they're attracted to value. Mm, okay. I was going to say it was convenient of them to, to convenient for them to just to accept what their fate was and just allow themselves to be consumed. But Maybe that that plays into them understanding what the bigger thing is again with with what they with what they value, even though they 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 wanted to live their lives in peace, they knew that it was at the cost of 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 what someone else values and whether or not that comes into conflict with the way that they're living their lives. Yeah, I, I think really it's it's the villagers in a sense returning what they took but offering their own bodies instead to heal Fapta. So again, like they they took from Irumiyui by using her as a safe haven and eating her children to heal themselves. And now in return, they are giving themselves to heal Fapta um, and to, I guess, destroy the safe haven and like open things back up. So it has just kind of all come full circle. It starts off with a struggle and it's very gruesome. Uh, but then it ends up more as like willing, willingly accepting fate, but still gruesome because you're still eating them. Yeah, and just um, the value of forgiveness for both sides and reconciliation. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk real quick about the return of Meaty. <laughs> oh, God, Meaty. Uh, it was, <laughs> I'll be honest, it disgusted me at first. I mean, I was shocked that Miti was back but then in my head I was thinking this kind of discounts the the whole thing that Nanachi had with Miti 
in the first season where like she she finally learned to let go of of Miti and then she just comes back here like it's nothing and I was thinking oh does Reg's incinerator ability just <laughs> just take things and push them somewhere else <laughs> that's what I thought too I'm like they didn't actually get rid of Miti they just moved her elsewhere but mm. we learn that it's not the real meeting necessarily. Yeah. It's like a recreation, including her soul, of the meetie that Beloff had met back in the day. So it's not even the meetie that like we knew in season one. It was like a prior version of that. But either way, of all of the crazy shit that happened in season two, that's the moment where I was like, okay, Miti's back. Literally anything is possible in the abyss. Mm-hmm. like that that's what solidified it for me like literally anything is possible not the fucking wishing eggs that made all these like dead babies and like turned Iru Mui into a fucking um building or like these you know immortal creatures or like hollows living for 150 years none of that shit it's fucking Mitty coming back I'm like anything is possible in this hole in the ground but it's I think it was just as emotional the second time around to watch Nanachi and Miti say goodbye. It, it didn't hit quite as hard because we've already gone through it once, mm. but just Nanachi having to deal with that yet again after finally getting that sigh of relief that her friend was no longer suffering. It was like just, I don't know, salt in the wound, really. I mean, at least this time, like Miti, like her cries weren't like suffering as she was disintegrating because obviously it's like an... An, an image of her and not the, the real thing. Um, but here too, another example of value. Obviously, the thing that Nanachi had valued in that moment when she saw Beloff, um, like, I think he was consuming Midi, right? Yeah. Uh, and then she he, she put a stop <laughs> she put a stop to that by offering her herself instead and just spending time with with Midi. But then Nanachi kind of realizes. Like the, the real thing to value is what she was going to like continuing a journey with Greg and Rico and, and having her memories of Miti to encourage her in that journey. And so like even though it was it was dumb having to see Nanachi say goodbye to Miti one more time, uh, I think that again just increases the things that Nanachi really values. Yeah, uh, in this season. I also, and this is kind of in relation to Miti, I also really like that we got a little more context around what Reg's hand cannon is actually capable of. Like, yeah, it destroys shit, but we get more of the context. Uh, I don't remember who the fuck said it. Was it Bondrude or somebody said, like, um, Reg's hand cannon has the ability to rewrite the laws of the abyss? And that was a very ambiguous statement. Here, it's like we get more confirmation about what that actually means. I think the the biggest piece is when he fires it at the wall of the village, and that breaks the barrier, the impenetrable mm-hmm. ba- uh, barrier that Fafta has been stuck behind. This is the one thing that can rewrite that law and allow Fafta to enter this village. So then that makes me think of Miti from season one. Because her death came about when she was blasted to who the fuck knows where using Reg's hand cannon. 
So yes, you could argue that she was just disintegrated, but leading up to that, Nanachi had said in, that there were multiple ways that she had tried to kill Miti, but she just would not die. She just continued to be immortal. So in my mind, I'm almost rethinking how I thought that scene played out. Maybe it wasn't even about disintegrating Miti. It was more about rewriting the laws of the abyss and getting rid of her you know what I mean? Like getting rid of her who is unable to be rid of, <laughs> like turning an immortal an person immortal. Mm. into a mortal person. So you think she did get pushed somewhere else? No, I think she like just disappeared. Like whether it was actually incinerated mm. or just like disappeared. I think it's more than just blasting her away. It's like actually rewriting the laws of the abyss rewriting the laws of Miti saying that she is no longer immortal. She is now mortal and can be killed <laughs> okay so in a way anything can happen in the abyss with the incinerator yeah but like it's gonna a, be destroyed it's mostly like a like deus ex machina yeah it's more like destruction related because I, I can't see in uh, any way that reg would be able to rewrite laws of the abyss without having to blast those things to another dimension <laughs> it's you know like what I mean? that, that always sunny meme with frank he's like so anyways i started blasting yeah like all you have to do is just blast at the abyss and your all your, your problems are solved yeah i got a weird situation you can't overcome in the abyss reg will just blast it away <laughs> i do want to talk also a little bit about rico i don't have much to say because she kind of played a bit of a backseat in the latter half of the season um but I feel like Rico still played a hand in, in some of the things that happened here. In the beginning, she was as frustrating as she can be because she's going off and getting herself sick and separating from the group and getting herself in these situations where she's about to get ripped to pieces by the hollows and has to be saved. And I'm like, Rico, I know you're adventurous, but can you be logical at the same time? Um, but I feel like she, she definitely helped a lot in the latter half with being able to use Prushka in her refined form, um, showing us that Reg can be controlled using her whistle. Because we've been told before, like, the whistles unlock the potential of relics, right? Is that the term? Yes. So here we get confirmation of that with Reg turning, like, his his helmet and his outfit turning On white. Silver Chariot. Yeah. <laughs> and he has, like, this immense power when he hears her whistle um and so that was kind of cool i want more of that like there i, I kind of wanted more of rico in general but i think this was more about reg's story um and a little bit about nanachi's story than rico's we've got we got plenty of rico i would say in the first season and in the movie so i'm sure we'll get more of her later um <laughs> i'm gonna say i think rico's the least interesting person it maybe not just in this season but in the entire series, for me at least, because <laughs> uh, I, I know she she does take a back seat here, but even in the scenes where she 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 does make a more significant appearance, um, she doesn't offer much besides saying, "Oh, like I'm I'm just so like I have this thirst for adventure and I want to find out more about my mother and." Yeah, I guess she does play a bigger role in that she is the catalyst for Reg turning into Silver Chariot and, and having that strong conne connection with Prushka through her whistle. But yeah, she's she doesn't seem as interesting as any of these other characters so far, besides the fact that she wants to go see her mother. 
She's like the driving force. She's the reason for the adventure, but yeah, it's not possible without Nanachi and Reg. Exactly. So maybe she, she'll get a, a bigger starring role. I know she is kind of the the main protagonist of the series, but just getting to see more of like her story develop, even though I don't know how, how much more you can develop from from wanting to find out about the abyss and about your mother. Um, and then just, just using these other two characters as, as your weapons, basically like Nanachi <laughs> and, and Reg. Well, I do think Rico cares very much about her group. No. Yeah, yeah. I think that she, she cares very much about everybody, even the people that everyone else distrusts, like Wazukian, right? Like she was like, no, I don't hate you. I don't know anything about you. So how can I hate you? Right. She's just, mm-hmm. um, I guess naive, naive. <laughs> in a good and bad way. Like there's there's positives and negatives to her naivety. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that Rico, at least, you know, she offered a decent amount to the story. And uh, sorry, not the story, but season two's story. Um, and I'd like for her to take more of a forefront, hopefully in the next season, whenever that is. The story in season two does conclude with everyone dying (laughs) i touched on that a little bit before but i did want to throw that out there that we go through this entire arc and the only one who survives of all of these new characters is fapta herself like everybody literally fucking everybody dies which i guess uh was kind it's kind of i don't know if ironic's the right term but considering the fact that irum yui Again, her, the thing that she valued most was bearing a child and then having to go through all the the, the, the children that um, died at birth and then eventually just turned into to Wazukian stew. Uh, she achieved her ultimate goal, which is that Faputa ended up living and is kind of immortal, right? Or I guess she is immortal because Faputa means immortal princess. Yeah. And she's got three wish eggs inside of her, apparently, to make that happen. Voiko's death, I thought, was the coolest. That that sounds weird, (laughs) right? (laughs) But it was the coolest one because it was the only one that confirmed what happens when you ascend in the sixth layer. I think they already Mm. knew that ascending in the sixth layer turns you into a hollow. But we actually got, like, confirmation. Actually, you know what? I'm wrong. We did get confirmation of that in the movie because Bondrude sends fucking Nanachi and... Uh, Miti down and then sends them back up and then they turn into hollows. Wasn't that that was the first season? Oh, oops, yeah, you're right. Sorry, the first yeah. season. Yeah. So yeah, so we, we already knew it. it. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just still think it was like the we went the whole time with nobody succumbing to the um the uh, curse. The curse. Yeah, I can't think of the word for some reason. And here at the very last moment, the the only surviving human succumbs to the curse, not realizing that the barrier has been broken in the village. And then we see her become almost completely a hollow. She like stops just in time to like keep her mental state intact. What did you think of Vueco as a character? Because the thing I got from her is that, yeah, like she wanted to, uh, take care of Irum Yui. Um, like she knew that she was suffering after not being able to bear children. Um, and then the whole thing with Wazikan, obviously that was a morbid revelation for her. Uh, but then she she, cho- she chooses not to be a part of that and then kind of puts herself into a self-exile 
right? Because Wazikan uh, had wished for her to be connected to Irumiyui so that they could continue to survive or thrive under her becoming the village, basically. Um, but like after that point, I felt like this Vueco was just a, uh, um, what's the term? Oh, uh, a broken record in just how like she just felt feels so much self pity that she couldn't help Irumiyui any further. Yeah, Waco is an interesting character because I feel for her. Um, she's gone through some crazy shit, and she just wanted the best for everyone, especially Irumiyui. But she's often—I mean, I'm just gonna say it—she's often spineless. I think there mm-hmm. were opportunities okay, so for her on to the step same page. Up. I think. Yeah. yeah, I think there were opportunities, and and she keeps saying like there was nothing I could do, or what could I possibly do? I'm like, uh, there was probably something you could have done, right? Like you could have at least tried. I feel like she didn't even try. That's the difference. Like sometimes you you may not actually have the ability to change a certain situation, but you at least give it an attempt. She just gave up at the thought of failure, and that was something that happened quite often. And she, I mean, in general, she's a meek, timid character. So maybe it would have been out of character for her to step up to the plate and try to do something. But at the end of the day, I think her her best quality was her compassion for Irumiui and literally mm-hmm. being the only one that connected with her to the point where she was so critical to the safe haven taking shape and becoming a thing that Wazukian stopped her from killing herself because she knew like if I if I'm not in this situation anymore your your goal yeah like your goal cannot be achieved so she at least did that but you're right like she just kind of like well I don't know was she was she willingly in that dark room or was she actually trapped there because she told Rico that she cannot escape and then Rico had to break the barrier for her or break like the 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 gooby chains <laughs> for her. I don't know what they were, right? Like the the black goop that was around her neck. Oh yeah, I think um Wazikan imprisoned her cuz he knew like she yeah, she was a a piece of the puzzle in in keeping Irubru alive. But I think yeah, at the very least she she gets closure with finally getting to see Iromui's offspring in the flesh, even though like she's half hollow, um, and just getting that closure that you know Iromui is in a way at peace because um, she no longer has to to be um she was technically a mother as as the as the fleshy village itself right taking care of its inhabitants yeah <laughs> but I guess being being a mother in a proper way now with like Falpata being her legacy. Yeah, I would say to me, Weko was such a mild character that I didn't dislike her. But I also just felt like there were so many other characters that overshadowed her and overpowered her because they had just so much more to offer and more personality and, and all of that. I, I think really her her purpose was maybe like the catalyst but also the storyteller for Irumiui. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to our final thoughts for Made in Abyss, the golden city of the scorching sun. So how many in a world of pure magicajas out of 10 would you give 
this season. What would, why does it sound familiar? What is that from? It's from Willy Wonka. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just I was I I saw a YouTube clip of the movie earlier, and and then uh, I thought of that song, and I was like, oh, this fits with Majikaja, which. I want to say he he's my second favorite character in the show. I didn't get him. Like, was he a hollow? He was a hollow, yes. So was he fleshy or was he a robot? I thought he was a robot the whole, I mean, like, yeah, most I, of the time. Yeah, I didn't think it's implied that he, he was a robot. Uh, but then, yeah, because he, he transferred his soul into Faputa. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, but then his, his, I guess his robot shell still was left behind. Anyways, what would you rate this season? <laughs> I would give it an 8.5 out of 10. So again, for context, I gave season one a nine. I gave uh, the third movie an eight, and I would give this an 8.5. I think it's um, a step above the movie, both in story and in animation and overall production quality. I mean, holy shit. This season was fucking gorgeous, especially the action scenes and even like the gore, just the detail of everything. It was a beautifully animated season. Yeah. Uh, sorry. It, Kinema Citrus, right? was the studio behind it. Yes. And like I know like the CG parts, like w- with the, the horse looking creatures, with Majikaja itself, um, those were kind of off putting. But uh, seeing uh, Faputa in action, like just how seamless and how dynamic her movements were, uh, that was a treat to watch uh, in the climax. And the reason it's like a half point below season one is, yeah, there was mystery, I guess, and a sense of wonder, but like the adventure aspect and like the overall mystery of the abyss was sort of put to the side for this particular arc. Um, but overall, the season was a roller coaster that gave us tons of insight into the potential of the, the abyss. Again, as I said earlier, anything seems possible in the abyss. I think the sticking point for me with this season is that again, it felt like a very finite arc. I could see some ties to the larger Made in Abyss story, like the compass that Rico lost in season one, Reg meeting Fapta on his journey to the surface, Bondrude visiting the village years ago. Um, But my question is, will this arc play a significant role in the story? I know I said earlier that I'm, I'm hesitantly confident that in some way it will because the writing seems very strong in this show but i don't know like at this point it it still feels a little bit detached because you go through this through this whole adventure and again literally everyone dies and all of the questions are answered for the most part except for maybe like reg but that's a, a larger part of the story that we'll we'll get at a later point so it's like what now right like we just go back to the main adventure so it almost feels like like a filler <laughs> kind of like not kind of but not really like at least the third movie had w- like a direct s- story tie in with the white with like pushka's whistle yeah and like the overall story like the mystery of the abyss rico's mom all of that this was like very separate from from all of that um so i i'm i'm hoping that there again that we'll get more tie-ins as the show progresses but again it's not to say at all that the, the season wasn't amazing again it it was just so compelling, a beautifully intricate story um, that not only tugged at my heartstrings, but ripped them to shreds. And it was all complete with that gorgeous animation and insane production quality. But what about you? Yeah, I gave this season, as with the first season, an 8 out of 10. As I said earlier, this show may not be as emotionally resonant with me as with many others out there, but I can get behind this season's message of what it means for something to have value 
and how that value can impact those around us or the characters in this season specifically. Uh, this season presented some really interesting gray moral areas surrounding the topic where it can be difficult to determine who is right and who is wrong, especially in terms of the pilgrims and their treatment of Iromui and, and seeing the, the conflict of those values where the one value is these these pilgrims want to survive, but the, the other value is like Iromui like wants to to fulfill her, her, her goal of, of being a mother and then that being kind of exploited in a way. But I think along with all of that, I think the amount of the creature gore porn in this season felt a little excessive, uh, where it was almost like shocking just for the state of being shocking. But I think it's still paired as well as it could with the weight of the decisions that the characters like Wazukan, like Vueco and, and Faputa have had to make in many parts of this season. And even if at times Nanachi, Reg, and most especially Rico have felt like they were more so cameos in this season as observers of the goings-on, uh, at least they, they have a renewed sense of what they truly value in this journey and search for answers through the heart of the abyss. And now I feel like we have to throw ourselves into the abyss of having to wait probably another five years for season three. Let's hope not. Because oh yeah. <laughs> I, I went on Reddit and was just, just reading a little bit about Made in Abyss. And according to one Redditor, the manga is barely three chapters ahead of the anime at oh. this point. <laughs> Um, and I forget how many layers of the abyss are there. I think there's seven confirmed layers, uh-huh. and like the eighth layer, if there is an eighth layer, is like really where things get like Dicey. it becomes unknown. Okay, uh, I I just thought there there are nine, but I think that's because of, there are nine circles of hell, and I keep going to that analogy. Um, so yeah, it's probably a a far ways away before we can get to the absolute bottom of the abyss. Um, I was also reading that there could be a live action film based on this anime. No, thanks. <laughs> so I don't know if that, that'll hold us over. Uh, <laughs> I know that's not going to hold Courtney over, but you know, we'll, we'll see what, what's in store for us as we, we settle in our own abyss. How are they going to do a live action with all the gore? And, and like with kids in that? too yeah unless it's like almost like a like a stranger thing sort of sort of route maybe i mean i'm intrigued at how they'll approach a live action but i don't think i'd watch it because <laughs> i just don't enjoy live action adaptations in general but anyway that was our review of made in abyss season two um i do have to jump on an airplane in just a few hours but we appreciate you guys tuning in hopefully you enjoyed the discussion even if it was a little less in depth than normal hope you enjoyed our our general chat about made in abyss season two thank you so much guys we appreciate you a ton subscribe to strictly anime on your favorite podcast service join our discord to chat with us follow us on instagram at the strictly series on twitter at strictly series and check out our website the strictly series.com if you'd like to support the show, then head over to patreon.com slash the Strictly series and tune into Strictly Jojo, our other podcast dedicated to Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. All links are in the description. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weeb.